Welcome to episode two of Your Anxiety Playground, a podcast that I I do really hope will help you with your anxiety. And in the first episode, we talked about what anxiety is to try to get an understanding of what it is. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the difference between anxiety and excitement and the similarities. And so I'll just quickly ask you, when you feel excitement and when you feel anxiety, what are the differences? And what are the similarities? So we'll unpack that, and, and, but I, I will just quickly say again, my name is Nate Page. I'm a licensed psychologist and a certified group psychotherapist, and I work with anxiety day in, day out with my individual therapy clients and my group therapy clients. And this podcast is designed as you know educational resource to help you be able to understand anxiety better and hopefully be able to make some changes with your relationship with anxiety. And when I meet with clients, one of the first conversations we will have is usually around this idea of the difference and the similarities between excitement and anxiety. And last episode, we talked about how anxiety has, you know, the three parts, the physical side, the mental side, and the emotional side. And excitement has the same thing, the physical side, the emotional side, and the uh, mental side. But the fascinating thing is with anxiety and excitement, two of those things are different, but one is exactly the same. And we'll see if you can figure out which one as you think about it, but it's the physical, the physiological side. If you were to hook somebody up to a machine that was reading their physiological processes, and you would notice that the sympathetic system getting activated, your heart rate increasing, your breathing rate increasing, some of those butterflies in your stomach, the muscle tension, the stress hormones coursing through their body, you would actually not be able to tell if that person was having a panic attack versus maybe they just won the lottery or something. You really, you really can't tell from a physical perspective if someone is experiencing anxiety or if they're experiencing excitement. They're so similar. Essentially they're the same things, but of course, mentally, and emotionally, they're very different. In some ways they're, they're quite opposite with anxiety. There is avoidance energy. I want to escape something. I want to get away from something. I want to do everything in my power to make sure that this bad thing doesn't happen. So there's a lot of energy in that direction to avoid. Whereas with excitement, there's approach energy is what we usually say. I want to get closer to something. I want to chase something. I want to have something. I want to, I want this thing to happen. And So, I mean, we'll share a number of examples of this. One is just a memory I have of being seven years old and the night before Christmas trying to fall asleep. We celebrated Christmas in my family. And I just remember being in bed at my grandparents' house and my heart was racing. I was breathing pretty quickly. I had butterflies in my stomach. I remember I was sweating a bit. My muscles were tense. But I, I know for sure I was excited. I so wanted Christmas morning to come. It couldn't come fast enough. In fact, it was painful that I had to wait for it. But the fascinating thing is my body was experiencing that fight, flight, or freeze response. And I remember even having a bit of nausea. I was so excited. Um, but I did not have that avoidance energy. I had that approach, that chase energy. But that was a very, very similar feeling to, uh, I mean, one memory I have is when I was asked to give a speech at church as a teenager. 
And I remember it's a very, very same thing that was going on inside my body. My heart was racing. My breathing was going pretty quick. I remember actually sitting on the stand, getting ready to give the speech and my muscles and my body were so tense. And I had so much of that, those stress hormones coursing through my body that I was actually shaking a little bit. And then I remember getting up and giving my speech. And I, I remember I felt like I was shaking while I was giving the talk. And I was so confident that people were judging me and thinking how horrible I was. And then I remember sitting down afterwards and my body actually shook even more. I felt like I was having some convulsions as my body worked through the rest of that adrenaline and cortisol and, and other things. But it was the type of experience that I would have done anything I could have to avoid giving that talk. Some other examples that can be helpful, and it'll, I think it'll make sense as this podcast goes on, why this is such an important concept to compare anxiety and excitement. But, I mean, some people hate roller coasters. Other people love them. Some people would never go skydiving or do bungee jumping, but some people love that. Uh, of course, with public speaking, some people hate it. And you hear people talk about how that's one of the biggest fears, but some people love it. They really like doing it. One thing that I'll, I'll ask clients a lot is, do you like scary movies? So you can ask yourself that question as, as you're listening to this. Do you like scary movies? And when I first started doing therapy, like you know, 15 years ago, I would have guessed that, oh, anyone with an anxiety disorder would not like scary movies. And at least that's the way I was. I didn't used to like scary movies at all. But I've continued to ask that question with the clients with anxiety, and it just surprised me. And I would guess probably about 50-50. About 50% of people say, nah, scary movies aren't my thing. Um, some people are really, really don't like scary movies, but most it's kind of a, no, I don't like that. But probably about 50% say, yeah, I do. Or I like these kinds of scary movies. I, I, I enjoy that anxiety. And it can be eye-opening for clients to start to recognize that. Like, oh, yeah, anxiety can be enjoyable or it can switch pretty easily from anxiety to excitement. And I think scary movies are a good example of that because it's, it's a way that you get to play around with your anxiety. Now, of course, one of the differences is when I'm actually feeling anxiety, usually there's a rigidity and this, this kind of strong belief and interpretation that something bad really is going to happen. And with a scary movie, you're able to let that go. Even though I might be feeling like, oh, there's an axe or murderer that's going to get me. I know that that's not real. So I get to play around with that more and enjoy that and enjoy my heart going fast and my body kind of pretending that there's an axe murderer that's going to get me or this person that I'm, I'm watching. Now, let me try to explain why I think it's so important to start with this concept of how anxiety and excitement are similar. And that's because it, it usually helps people feel more empowered to be able to face their anxiety and make the changes that they want to make. And usually it kind of breaks up some of that connection between the physiological and the mental and the emotional. And people start to feel a little bit more free that, oh, I, I can actually make changes and I can face these things that I maybe have been dreading and, and avoiding so rigidly for so long. And a helpful example might be people that have a phobia of flying. 
And I've worked with a lot of people that come in wanting to change that because that can become quite limiting if you're not able to fly. You might be, not be able to do family events or weddings or, or do professional uh, conferences or other things like that. And the fascinating thing with something like flying, which is the same thing with any anxiety concern, is that people aren't really scared of flying. People are scared of the feelings that they have when they fly or when they think about flying. And so people aren't really even avoiding the flying. They're avoiding the feelings that they have when they're flying. And I think flying is a good example because people will tell me in the first session, they'll say, I know the statistics. I know that flying is supposed to be so much safer than driving a car or other modes of transportation. But even though they know mentally, uh, the reality of it is they still tend to experience that physiological and often the emotional uncomfortableness that comes with it. And then they work really, really hard to avoid those feelings, which of course then also means that I avoid flying or maybe even thinking about flying or watching movies about flying. And so what happens with this fear of flying is that when people start to recognize that, oh, not only could I fly and feel all of those feelings that come up as I might even enjoy it. It would be in some ways the same experience as going and watching a scary movie and recognizing I might even be able to enjoy it. And even if I don't enjoy it, I at least could do it. I could go and watch a scary movie and be okay. Same thing as I could get on a plane, my body might really freak out, I might even have a panic attack, I would feel all of those uncomfortable feelings, but I can do that. And it's just fascinating. You can probably even get on YouTube. I know I've seen one video of this pilot that helps people with the fear of flying. I think he became a therapist and it shows videos of people, you know, after they do some therapy work and they're ready, but they actually get on a plane. And what just happens for each person is they do get anxious. Their anxiety goes up for sure. It's like that scary movie starts and they're Blood starts pumping faster. Their heart's beating faster. They feel that dread in their stomach. They might start to shake and they do get really scared. But then this fascinating things happens is as they continue to feel that and be okay with it, that, yeah, I'm feeling anxious. Then this shift starts to happen and they start to feel more empowered and they realize, whoa, I'm doing it. And the only thing that's happening is I'm scared. My body is flipping out and, and I can handle that. And then they also, I mean, most of the people, at least on these videos, is they start to develop some excitement, some fun, and that sense of empowerment. They're like, whoa, this is really cool. And of course, there's also the excitement of this has been limiting me for so long, and I'm actually doing the thing that I was so scared of. And so there's a thrill even in that. And, and so it's a similar experience of, oh, I'm, I'm enjoying this roller coaster. I'm enjoying this this <laughs> skydiving or public speaking or, or whatever it is, but I'm, I'm having a corrective, positive experience with this. And no matter what the anxiety concern is, this is what you are wanting to have, well, in therapy, when you come in and work on it in therapy or, or in your life in general, if you're trying to do these things on your own. And this is why exposure work is what does the trick for anxiety concerns. Let's maybe do another example uh, to kind of drill this point home more. We'll talk about obsessive compulsive disorder. It's one of the things I would have been diagnosed with as a, a teenager. 
Um, and I will quickly say, so this next episode, I plan to share uh, my story with anxiety and what it was like for me growing up and the disorders I would have had and and the ways that I've worked through different things. And so I, I think that might be helpful for you to hear. And then I do want to do a lot of live consulting on this podcast where people call in, so to speak, and we get to unpack and explore you know, your anxiety or their anxiety, what's going on. And, and I think that can be really helpful for you to witness and, and hear people talking about their anxiety in ways that they've made changes and, and for us to even maybe do a little bit of anxiety work live together for you to, to witness. But we'll just use this example of obsessive compulsive disorder. And one of the kind of iconic classic things that you hear about, and maybe this is something you struggle with, but is that washing hands compulsion, which usually there's the thought or the fear of germs. But when I wash my hands, what really happens is I feel a reduction in my anxiety. I wash my hands. I feel like they're clean. The germs are off. And so my anxiety goes down and maybe it goes down for an hour. Maybe it goes down for a minute, but there is that almost immediate anxiety reduction. And that can be really nice. And in fact, it's, it's the exact thing that I'm wanting if I'm feeling anxious. And so uh, I can get easily then wrapped into that and that can become a compulsion. And so when I wash my hands, it's usually a way to deal with my anxiety and it can escalate. So maybe I wash my hands three times a day and that feels good, but pretty soon I'm washing my hands 10 times a day. And each time I do, my anxiety reduces a little bit, at least in the short run. And so the way to work, I mean, there's a lot of things with OCD and often medication is really important. And of course, there's work to try to understand what's going on. But a lot of the big main work is to not engage in the compulsion, to not wash your hands. And what will happen almost guaranteed is by not washing my hands, my anxiety goes up, which is the exact opposite of what I want. I desperately want my anxiety to go down. And so I'll be so willing to wash my hands, even if my hands are hurting and raw and bleeding, I'll do that so that I can get that hit of the anxiety going down for a little bit. So to not wash my hands is very counterintuitive. I mean, a very similar thing to getting on a plane if I'm scared of flying. But by not engaging in the compulsion and washing my hands, my anxiety will go up. But then if I'm ready for it and just recognize all this is, is it's a scary movie. It feels like an ax murderer is going to get me. It feels horrible. It feels really, really, really wrong. But I can handle this. And then the more that I do that, and, and what actually usually happens is the anxiety will go up and it will stay high for maybe a minute or two, might last for a while, but then the anxiety will come down without washing my hands. And the more that I do that, the, the more empowered I feel and the more that I'm not entrenched in this unhealthy kind of um, power dynamic with my anxiety where I give into it but I'm bigger than my anxiety. And then there can be the exact same thing. I can start to feel excited about not washing my hands. And it can be thrilling and empowering and to recognize that, oh, all that's happening is my sympathetic nervous system is just, just going off. And it might take 15, 20 minutes for my body to work through that, but I can handle that. And some people do end up getting really kind of 
excited and, and, and adventurous. And actually one of the treatments that can be really helpful is to, for example, go into a public restroom and be able to touch the toilet seats and touch the dirty things and then wait, you know, 20, 30 minutes or an hour or two before washing your hands and letting your body be able to handle that anxiety. And so, and so it is fun. I don't know if there's any videos, but I've, I've talked to people that when they do this type of thing with obsessive compulsive disorder, there is an excitement that can come with that empowerment and that detangling of that detaching and, and, and not being uh, so stuck in the anxiety. So hopefully as I'm describing these examples, this is helpful for you and hopefully helping you build some courage to be able to face your anxiety, whatever it might be. A common one that I work with in, in therapy a lot is the fear of death, which is a very human thing. I mean, we all, we all feel anxiety about death, uh, but for some people it becomes debilitating and it, it's a daily thing and it, they might not be able to sleep well. And so that's one of the common things that I work with. And so we get to really face death and talk about it and talk about all the, the pain and the yuckiness and the fear and how it feels really wrong for a number of people. Um, but it's just fascinating watching people do that. And the more we talk about death, or not the more, but when we start to talk about death, the anxiety does go up in session. But it's almost like clockwork that then after we really face it, and maybe there's some tears, maybe there's some anger, maybe there's other things that come up, maybe grief from family or friends that have they've lost. But it's almost like clockwork that about 10, 15 minutes into that, the anxiety goes down. And it's helpful for people to recognize that. So I have fun in session as I start to guess that people's anxiety goes down and say, well, where's your anxiety at now? And people might say, whoa, it was at an eight out of 10. And now it's like a four out of 10. And while that's so backwards that my anxiety is actually going down after I face it, because that's the exact opposite of what I've been trying to do. I've been doing everything in my power to avoid and escape. So sitting here with you, Nate, and the fact that we're actually approaching it is so counterintuitive but it's working. I have a very clear memory of one of the first clients to go through this process with me when I was in my graduate training. And there was something that they had been avoiding talking about. We had kind of talked about it, but they were avoiding it because every time we touched on it, the anxiety would really go up. But finally, they were able to talk about it. And their anxiety did go up. It really kind of skyrocketed, but then it came down. And as it dawned on them, like, whoa, this is what I've been missing. It was so helpful for me to actually see this play out, all these things that I'd been learning, but so helpful for them. And then it was just so much fun the next few months that we worked together because we, re we repeated this over and over again with that same thing that they'd been avoiding, but then the other anxieties. And they really latched on. And and, and it, so it's it's really fascinating with different clients. So if you were sitting in my office right now with whatever your anxiety concerns are, I'd be really paying attention to you and seeing, well, how is this landing on you? And some people, they do take this and run with it. And clients will make big changes really quickly as they make this connection of, oh, if I face my anxieties, they'll actually go down. So some people with like social anxiety, They'll be like, oh, it feels so wrong, so counterintuitive to raise my hand in class. Are you kidding me? That is the exact opposite. But I'm getting it now that if I actually do that, that will help my anxiety and I might 
start to have fun with that. It might be exciting. So people will challenge themselves to do that or challenge themselves to go to a party or to go sit down with people in a cafeteria or ask somebody out. Um, so it's, it's, it's really fun when clients move quickly and they're able to have this counterintuitive move of facing their anxiety. But not every client is like that for a wide variety of reasons. Again, sometimes it's because the anxiety is so intense or, or maybe there's trauma that's wrapped into it. And so the exposure work isn't necessarily something that uh, we'd want to do quickly or we'd want to be more careful about it. With some clients, it takes longer to warm up and, and they need a slower approach. And, and at least with anxiety treatment, like we've mentioned before, exposure is always part of it. It's, it's a necessary thing. It's what does the trick. But there is an art and, and a, a back and forth with the client of trying to figure out when and how much and what's the best way to do it. And for some people, the sink or swim approach is what they're wanting and really helps. Like, yeah, let's just jump in. Yeah, get me on that airplane. <laughs> I get it now. If I just do that, that will help me get over this. But some people... Uh, need more of a gradiated approach, if that's the right way to say, or gradual, where we do it bit by bit, where maybe we talk about getting on an airplane for a while until they can manage that. And then we look at pictures of getting on an airplane. And then we watch some movies. And then we go to the airport together and we look at the airplanes. And then, you know, maybe after a bit, they're finally ready to get on the plane. So it's a very individual thing of, of when someone is, is ready. And it's important to not go faster than you're able. And so I'll, I'll end this podcast with a story that I, I, I hope is helpful. And it's something that I think about quite a bit. And I sometimes will share with clients, but this is going on in my head when I'm meeting with clients and, and especially in our initial sessions as we're trying to figure out how much exposure uh, is helpful for this person. And so I remember... I was in graduate school. I was dating my now spouse. We were in Southern Utah and we went on this hike to some watering hole, kind of a swimming area. And there was this ledge that was, I don't know, probably 10, 12 feet above the water. And people were jumping off that and into the water. And I never did it. It didn't seem like that much fun to me, too much anxiety for me. Um, but we were there for maybe two hours, I don't know, and we saw lots of people come and go, but there was this one group, it was a young woman and then two young men, and I don't know, they were probably seniors in high school or maybe first year college students, and they came and the young men started to jump off the ledge pretty quickly, and the young woman, you could tell she wanted to, but she was nervous, there was some anxiety, and then she finally went up and she was on the ledge and looking over, and unfortunately, the young men, they were being kind of jerk-ish. They were, they were taunting her. They were kind of making fun of her. And one of the young men, I remember, just made a move, kind of pretending that he was going to push her in. And with that, she just kind of went for it. She'd made the jump. Um, he didn't push her in, but he'd, he'd kind of scared her, pretended her to do that. And, and she came up out of the water, and she was just upset. She was angry. She was distressed. Of course, that was a jerky thing for him to do. And she didn't seem like she enjoyed it. And she didn't jump off the ledge for the rest of the time that they were there. And I really wish in watching that, if there was some way that I could rewind the clock and say to the young men, just, just shut up, leave her alone. I would like to see what would have happened. And my best guess is that she would have stood at the ledge and she would have been nervous 
But if she would add a few extra moments or maybe minutes, who knows how long it would take, but then she would decide on her own to jump. And my guess is she would have enjoyed it and come up and maybe even jumped, you know, over and over again, just like most people that, that went, uh, to that swimming watering hole or whatever. And I, that really stuck with me. And it is something that I think about quite a bit. And so with clients, when you're coming in for anxiety therapy work, that's one of the things that I'm playing with and navigating is where are you at with your agency, your choice around this? Because for sure, if I push you too quickly, it's probably, I don't know about for sure, but there's a really good chance that it's not going to be a helpful experience for you. And it can even reinforce the anxiety and have a, a, an experience like, oh, see, this is not, not helpful. See, my anxiety really is a bad thing. And so, so I, I've learned to be more patient, more trying to just <coughs> understand what's going on for you, but really, really try to hold the door open and say, come, you know, jump with me when you're ready, let's do this. And, and I find, found that to be helpful. And, um, and I'll, I'll say like, you know, you really do want to jump in, you know, when you're ready, maybe that's this session, maybe it's right now, let's go for it. But if you're not ready, you're fine. No rush, no pressure. We'll do this when you're ready. And so, um, and that's one of the things too, that I, I talked about last podcast, but it's really helpful to, to think about is when trauma is a part of your story. And when that's wrapped into your anxiety, then we want to be extra sensitive, especially with exposure work. And I, I am not a trauma specialist, but I am quite trauma sensitive. And the more work that I do, the more learning I, I've done a lot of training with trauma and I've met with a lot of clients where trauma is part of the story. And so this becomes really, really important. And if they're wanting to work through, through trauma and any, you know, anxiety concerns, uh, we want to be extra careful with that exposure and exposure by a well-meaning therapist and a well-meaning client that even want to do the exposure work, uh, it can backfire. And so, um, so that's something that I, I try to really be aware of and, and try to really help people connect to a trauma specialist when the trauma is, is uh, salient enough and big enough and, and something that they maybe need to work through first before they could start to work on some of these other anxiety concerns. One last thing that I'll, I'll share that I, it goes along the theme of what we're talking about in this episode is, uh, I guess to be playful, I guess you could say this is a secret to not ever having a panic attack again. If you have panic attacks, oh, and I've, I've had panic attacks in my life and they're really yucky. They're the type of thing you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Um, they're really, really horrible. And so anybody that's coming in wanting to, uh, or that has panic attacks for sure wants to change them and for them to be a, become a thing of the past. And one of the nice things with panic attacks is that does happen for a lot of people uh, with some good therapy work, anxiety or panic attacks and anxiety attacks can become a thing of the past. And so the secret, here's the secret to never having a panic attack again. And the secret is to want a panic attack. And if you genuinely want a panic attack, if you're excited about it, if you have that approach energy, like, yes, please come. The panic attack never really does. You might get anxious. Your anxiety level might rise for a bit, but you won't have a panic attack. And the reason for that is because panic attacks 
it's this fascinating thing where your anxiety folds over on itself. You get really anxious about your anxiety. You get panicked about your panic. And, and so it's almost like it, well, it is a, a feedback loop, a positive feedback loop. And so an analogy that I'll use sometimes to explain this is if you've ever been at a concert or someplace where there's a microphone and speakers and you get that feedback where there's a, you know, usually there's a hum, but then pretty quickly it turns into this loud sound and everybody covers their ears. And what happens with that is the sound that's coming out of the speakers accidentally goes back into the microphone and is then amplified and comes out of the speakers even louder and then goes back into the microphone again and it's amplified again. So there's that positive feedback loop and that's why it pretty quickly turns into this really loud sound. And so you have to turn the microphone off or get the microphone away from the speaker to stop that. Or of course, the speakers oftentimes have anti-feedback, so they'll cut out after a few moments of that. So that's what a panic attack is. It's the anxiety is going on, but then I feel anxious about the anxiety. So it gets a little stronger and then I'm even more anxious. So I feel you know, even more intensely. And then I'm more wanting to avoid that and more anxious about the anxiety. So then it grows and it grows and it, and then it can really spiral out of control. And so, so that's one of the reasons why this talk about anxiety versus excitement can be really helpful because that's one, one important way to get unstuck from that anxiety folding over on itself. And I've seen this happen with panic attacks where people are able to make that change like, oh, wow, if I want a panic attack, it won't come. And you have to genuinely want it. (laughs) You can't kind of pretend that you want it because then it will go away because then you're just still in that avoidance energy. But if you can really be in a place like, yes, come on, come on, panic attack, bring it on, let's do this. It doesn't, doesn't really come, or at least it doesn't come in the same way. And you have that sense of empowerment, that sense of, okay, here it comes. Here comes this wave of anxiety, but I can handle it. Um, and so, I mean, a lot of people don't make that 180 from, you know, desperately doing anything they could to avoid a panic attack to being really excited and wanting a panic attack. But even just shifting that a bit, like maybe I don't swing all the way to being excited about a panic attack, but I just swing to like what I just mentioned. I can handle this. I don't want it, but all that's happening is it's a a scary movie that's really playing out. My body is going into overdrive mode with the sympathetic nervous system. Okay, bring it on. Let's do this. And even with that, the panic attacks don't really come. And so that's the change that is really helpful for people to make. And I've just seen over and over and over again, people that come in with panic attacks. And then as we do this work, the panic attacks go away. They become a thing of the past. And that's really encouraging for people to hear, especially when they come in with panic attacks to recognize that, oh, this is something that can change. And like I mentioned in the first episode, that is one of the reasons why I like working with anxiety is people do make big changes. And a lot of these diagnoses and disorders that people have, they can go away. Okay, well, hopefully this is landing for you. You know, on my end, it feels like I'm talking into a void because I don't know how this is landing on you. And and realistically, this is probably landing on different people in different ways. So I am really curious how this is for you. And so if you wouldn't mind at any point shooting me an email or writing a review or something or just letting me know how this is impacting you, 
that will help me with future episodes and help me know how to shape this podcast in a way that really is helpful. For this next episode, I am wanting to share my story with anxiety and be able to give you some more concrete stories and examples that will probably resonate for you. I was definitely a a very anxious kid and um, had some specific fears and phobias. I would have been diagnosed with OCD. Social anxiety was part of my story and I definitely had panic attacks. And so I'll I'll, I'll talk through that in a way that I, I, I hope is helpful for you. And then just, I think, an important disclaimer, but also one that's kind of obligatory, is this is not therapy. And the ideas that I'm sharing here uh, won't fit for everyone, but I I do think that they'll fit for most everyone with anxiety concerns. And so please be a smart consumer of a a podcast like this and and take the things that really fit for you and and go with those. And then the things that don't fit for you, uh, feel free to disregard those. And just recognize that if this was like a therapy session where we were sitting one-on-one, that would give us the ability to know you and your story, the way that your anxiety plays out and to really be able to, to provide for you and, and, you know, navigate this and, and give you the, the homework and the challenges and the other things that would really be helpful for you that might not be helpful for the, the neighbor, the next person that comes in with anxiety. So come back for the third episode if you're wanting to hear more about me and my story with anxiety. Have a wonderful day.